Okay, let me, uh, before we get started, let me kick us off with prayer. Father, thanks so much. We do not believe that we're here by accident. You've drawn us for your purposes, for our good and our growth, for the uh, enriching, the, the, the stirring up, the deepening of our connection with you. So hear us, Lord, as our hearts now lean into you. We bring all that we know of ourselves to all that we know of you. And we ask you to speak to us. Father, I pray that you would forgive me of my sin and that you would enable this, uh, this morning, that you enable these words to be your words for us, and you would enable our hearts to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. Three weeks ago, we started a series on prayer, and I said that day that I felt like the two series with which we were starting off our fall were the two maybe most important, two of the most important conversations we've ever had at Gateway. And what I meant was when we, uh, we started in September talking about community, and now we've been talking about prayer. And when we talk about community, we're talking about our relationships with one another, our love for one another. Because healthy, authentic, Jesus-centered community is the ideal context for our relationships with one another. And after all, the second greatest commandment is love one another as you love yourself. And when we talk about prayer, we're talking about the cornerstone of our relationship with God. So those two dimensions, that horizontal connection and that vertical connection, that is what life is all about. In fact, Jesus at one point said, you could summarize the entire Old Testament in just those two things, love God and love one another. It's interesting for me, it's been interesting for me through this series of conversations, especially doing them back to back, and especially in light of how significant they both are for us, it's been interesting to think about that. I heard a quote from a podcast a couple of weeks ago that was awesome. I like how Pastor John Mark Comer put it. He said on this podcast, listen to this, it's tragic when we think of prayer as spirituality for introverts, just as tragic as it is when we think of community as spirituality for extroverts. We need both, all of us. And he's right. So today, we continue our conversation about prayer. And last week, we looked at the model prayer that Jesus gave us, the Lord's Prayer, or those of you who are from a Catholic background, the Our Father. Today, I want to look at a great example of prayer, really a shining example of a particular person from the Old Testament. And we're going to tease out of this four principles that should inform how we pray, how we pray. So we're going to look at uh, the story of Daniel's incident with the lion's den. Thank you, Chris. We're going to read uh, Daniel 6, 1 through 12. We won't read the whole story, but we'll read the setup. And if you would, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. 
At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, look, we, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went to the, to, as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The, the royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors We've all agreed, I wonder if they'd all agreed, but we've all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den because you're just so awesome, King Darius, and what king could refuse this? Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius, thinking this is a good idea, he put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. And these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. May the Lord multiply this to our hearts. You may be seated. Uh, of course, uh, Daniel is thrown in the lion's den. Um, four principles that guard and govern how we pray. Principle number one, prayer requires discipline. Consistency and effectiveness in prayer requires discipline. Look at Daniel's discipline. You remember verse 10? He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God. There was a method to Daniel's praying. There were set times, three times a day. In fact, we know that uh, many Jews throughout the centuries prayed three times a day prayed often creedal prayers, prayed set prayers, sometimes prayed spontaneous prayers. There was a specific place, even a direction for Daniel's prayer because it increased his faith. There was a bodily posture. Consistency and effectiveness in prayer requires this kind of discipline. I have a very good friend named Mark who many years ago uh, introduced me to a new kind of discipline in prayer. He used to pray extensively for a long time laundry list of prayer requests every day. And he had a, a little file folder with three by five cards in it. This was 114 years ago before the internet. And he would write down a person's name on the card and uh, write down notes under it that he had prayed about for them or things that they had said to him in requesting prayer. He came to me one time and he said, Ed, uh, do you have a good picture of yourself? Why do you want a picture of me? I just, do you have a picture of yourself? No, this was before cell phones. Uh, no, I don't. Would you mind if I take a picture of you? Mark, now it's getting weird. Well, just, can you let me take a picture of you? Why? And he brought out his, his uh, note cards and showed me. On most of his note cards, all that he could uh, arrange, he had a little picture of the person in the corner of the note card. 
And each day, he had a disciplined number of note cards that he would go through. He would take them out, pray for this person, pray for this person, pray for this person, put them back in, and then he would begin at that point. In the week, he would get to the end of his note cards. Prayer requires discipline. I think that's because, let's be honest, the results of prayer are almost never immediate. If, if, the, if the payoff was immediate, we would pray about everything all the time. Also, I think prayer requires discipline because we're speaking to someone who is unseen and unheard, by normal means at least. There's a, there's a, there's a mystery to it. There's an unknownness that makes it sometimes hard, sometimes awkward communication to stick with it. Prayer requires discipline. To do it well, prayer requires discipline. That discipline will include methodology, as with Daniel, as with my friend. It will include certain times. It will include certain kinds of prayer. And it will absolutely include your body. And I want to say a special note about that this morning. Discipline in prayer will include physical discipline. I mean, everything we do includes our body. Even what you think about includes your body. And if you don't think so, uh, think of the last time when you were in excruciating pain. Now, some of you know what I mean. You've had a, a back spasm, or you've had an injury, or you've had a, a heart issue, or you, you have been in excruciating pain. You've had kidney stones. Imagine someone coming to you at that point and saying, let's have a philosophical discussion. Let's talk about spiritual things. It's not going to happen. Discipline in prayer will include your body. If you're struggling in prayer, think about adding in some new element to your rhythm or think about adding some new element of your body. Use your body when you pray. I want you to look at this list of uh, prayer postures mentioned in the Bible. Crying, I did a lot of work on this this week. I thought I, that I would talk about this for a while, but we're not going to. We're just going to look at it. Crying out, prostrating ourselves, kneeling, lifting hands, lifting voices. If you find that your heart is cold, add some new bodily dimension. Silence, lifting eyes, bowing, sitting, lying down. If you're struggling with your prayer life, consider doing something different with your body. It helps me to take prayer walks. So I will regularly walk around my neighborhood and pray as I walk. Or pray on your knees. If that's not your habit, spend the next month. Get, get literally on your knees when you're praying. Consider standing. Uh, you know, if your spouse or roommate walks in on you, yeah, it looks a little weird, but it's also cool. Stand when you pray. Or Pray with lifting your hands. Try different bodily positions. It's a part of how we pray because prayer includes discipline. Secondly, prayer involves sacrifice. It just does. This is always true of every kind of discipline in our lives. Think of physical disciplines in your life. Eating and exercise, for example, they require sacrifice. When we say yes to one thing, we're saying no to other things. There's sacrifice in that. Obviously, the sacrifice uh, for Daniel, was literally a matter of life and death. For Daniel to continue his prayer practice, it meant that he was potentially putting his life at risk. Think about that for a minute. Think about what that says about Daniel's prayer life. Again, pause over that. Daniel prioritized his prayer practice over his own safety. Now, of course he should prioritize. We're religious people. He should prioritize his relationship with God over his safety. 
But, you know, couldn't he have compromised his prayer practice a little bit? You know, for the next month, God, I'll just, I'll just pray in the chariot on my way to and from work. After all, you've put me in this high government position. Surely you wouldn't want me to jeopardize that. But Daniel chose to pray. He accepted the sacrifice involved. Now, the sacrifice of prayer is usually not as dire as it was for Daniel, but there's always sacrifice. At the very least, time and energy. So why should we put in the discipline? Why should we suffer the sacrifices? It brings us to our third principle. Number three, prayer changes things. There's a lot to say here. I mean, in a sense, this is the entire reason for this series of conversation, conversations, because prayer changes things. That, but that's the unanimous testimony of the authors of the New Testament and the Old Testament. That's the unanimous testimony of Christian saints throughout church history and every person who has a deep walk with God that I've ever known. And some of you have that testimony as a part of your story as well. Prayer changes things. But let's consider Daniel for a moment. You know, it's weird that if you read the rest of Daniel chapter 6, you'll find out we don't have any recorded prayer from Daniel in the lion's den. That's unusual for biblical story. It's kind of fascinating. But we know he prayed. And his prayer was effective. Even King Darius, pagan King Darius, recognized the effectiveness of Daniel's prayer and the power of Daniel's God. It's just interesting that the, the Bible doesn't record that prayer for us. But what I want us to consider for a moment is the opening of this story, the very first verses of chapter 6. That's why I read that part of it. Verse 3 said this, now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So, do you think that Daniel's exceptional qualities were related to his natural abilities? I'll bet you it's not hard for us to think that. Certainly they were. He probably had extensive administrative abilities. He probably had a fairly strong, maybe a very strong uh, leadership capacity. He probably communicated well with those around him. He was known to be bright. That makes sense. His rise in prominence, his highly recognized exceptional qualities were certainly related to his natural abilities. But do you think those exceptional qualities might have also related to his spiritual life, specifically his life of prayer? I bet they were. I bet Daniel's prayer life bore fruit in his character and in the way he dealt with others. I bet there was favor on his life because he was a person of prayer. Prayer changes things. You know, one of the reasons we don't pray more, maybe the main reason we don't pray more is because we don't see the benefit. Uh, in the opening to his book on prayer, uh, Pastor Tim Keller tells how his wife launched him, late in his life, launched him into a whole new discipline in prayer and a whole, new, a whole new life of prayer. He goes on to explain how this new discipline in prayer changed everything in his life. But I, I, I love this. I want you to hear this morning what she did. Uh, he opens his book, this is Keller's book on prayer, by telling us how his wife launched him into a new chapter in his life on prayer. And he says this, as we remember it, she said something like this. Imagine you were diagnosed with a lethal condition that the doctor told you uh, you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine. A pill every night before going to sleep. 
Imagine that you were told that you could never miss it or you would die. Would you forget? Would you not get around to it some nights? No, it would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget. You would never miss. Well, if we don't pray to God, we're not going to make, we're not going to make it because of all we're facing. I'm certainly not. We have to pray. We can't let it slip from our minds. <laughs> and that guilt-inducing illustration changed Keller's life, changed his ministry. With that, everything changed. Prayer changes things. Okay, you know, I was going to tell some great prayer stories at this point to inspire us, but I'm going to go in a different direction this morning. Now, I, over the next uh, several months, um, and I'll also be explaining why. I'm, I'm going to tell some of those stories. I'll just sprinkle them in. So, by the way, if you've got a great prayer story that would encourage others, would you consider putting it into an email and sending it to me? I'm going to, I'm going to share some of those with all of us. But today, I want to tell a tough prayer story instead. Uh, for many of us, this is... Um, part of our experience for, for some of us, this is more often our experience. I'm going to tell this because it's still an example of how prayer changes things. Even disappointment in prayer changes things. I'm going to say that again. Even disappointment in prayer changes things. Two weeks ago here, I started to tell a story and I said, no, nah, I'm not going to tell that. Maybe I'll tell that some other time. Okay, well, this is the other time. Uh, Diane and I pastored in a uh, resource-deprived neighborhood in the Boston area for 13 years. And uh, during the time that we were there, a local church here in Northern Virginia, First Baptist Church in Alexandria, got a vision for planting churches throughout uh, Northern Virginia because, you know, this was the late 90s and throughout the 90s and into the early 2000s, you remember, this area was exploding especially down Route 1 South and out in Loudoun County. So they, they decided that they were going to finance five brand new church plants. This was going to be expensive. They were going to give some money to those church plants, and they were going to pay a pastor's salary full-time for three years. And then a fourth year half-time and a fifth year 25% at no benefit to themselves. So this just is a great giving, mission-minded effort. Uh, so they uh, knew about us and our ministry in Boston, and they asked uh, me if I would come down and try to start an, a church in Northern Virginia. I didn't know anything about starting a church, so what do you mean? Like, what do you mean start a church? Well, just like start a church. You mean like from scratch? Yeah. Well, I don't know what that means. No, I'm not interested. Besides, we lived in Boston. We're from the Carolinas. We would vacation in the Carolinas every summer. We would drive through this area, and we hated this area. We would drive through here on 495 in the middle of the night and think, we don't ever want to live here. Uh, and so I said no for a year and a half. And finally, just a lot of circumstances, God led us here to plant what would become Gateway Community Church. But it was a deeply, deeply, deeply discouraging time for me personally. My mother was going through a health crisis that would eventually take her life. And she was just a great godly woman and had, had one prayer the last half of her life. You know, God just helped me to live out independently uh, and die so that I'm not a burden to myself or to my children. And it looked like God was not answering that prayer. And uh, she felt 
disappointment, a little bitterness about that, I may have as well. Plus, I felt like I was just really, really, really tired from our ministry in uh, the Boston area. It was a wonderful ministry. We saw God do amazing things, a lot of great uh, Jesus stories, but, you know, um, uh, lower-income urban folks often don't have middle-class inhibitions, and uh, it just, it was a mash unit. So um, we didn't do a good job of taking care of ourselves. I didn't do a good job of taking care of us emotionally, spiritually, financially, for sure. Uh, so I was exhausted and burned out. And honestly, um, for reasons that are hard to explain, I felt like a failure. An, an utter, coming here originally to me uh, was uh, two parts excitement, eight parts failure. So... Um, Feeling all of this, trying to manage my way through it, reading books about how in the world do you start a church. And in the process, the, the pastor at the church in uh, Alexandria left, a complete surprise to me. Um, and they had, because of dynamics on their staff, they asked me if I would be the interim pastor for a few months at that church. So I did that. Um, uh, a couple of months into this, it was Easter Sunday. This was a, you know, fairly large church at the time. And uh, Easter Sunday, they would have two services, a big old school kind of Baptist sanctuary, you know, the, the big, long, lots of rows going really deep, flat. Uh, and they would pack it out for, for uh, two services, a lot of people. So uh, Easter Sunday, I'm preparing my message. And at the same time, I was reading a book just for my personal benefit called Disappointment with God. I told you a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, uh, it's by Philip Yancey, and he does a, a really good, effective job at the beginning of the book of just laying out what disappointment with God looks like, what it feels like, and then the back end, he tries to answer some of that. And for me, the front part worked really well, and the back part, not so much. So I have prepared an uh, Easter message that, by the way, it was really good. Uh, for 2,000 people on Easter Sunday morning and Saturday night, I went to bed and I said to Diane, my cute wife, uh, I don't think I can preach that sermon tomorrow. And she was like, wait, what? <laughs> what are you, what are you, what are you, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. I, I need to wrestle with this and, and see if I can get to the place where I can do this. Uh, we prayed, and then she went to sleep, and I couldn't. So I wrestled for a while. I eventually went to sleep. They had an Easter sunrise service, God forgive them. So I was living out in Ashburn and had to drive into Alexandria. So I woke up at the crack of dawn, having not slept very much. Diane wakes up when the alarm goes off, and... Uh, she says, you okay? And I said, no. And that's the last you heard from me. So I drove into the Easter sunrise service and uh, early service, nine o'clock, Diane comes in with our children, sits on the front row and she looks at, up at me like, I'm up, uh, this is old school Baptist. Some of you know this, you know, they had the big thrones up on the, the uh, um, stage and I'm sitting up on the throne and Diane look, tries to get my attention. She looks up at me and she says, kind of like, we okay? And I looked at her and said, and she mouths to me, what are you going to do? And I, I don't know. 
the service has started. So I stand up, packed house, Easter Sunday, they're all dressed up. This was enough ago, and that, you know, this was an old enough church that people were still wearing uh, suits and ties. Me too. So I stand up on Sunday morning, and I don't know what I'm going to say. So I decided that I would open my mouth because I had no choice. And I said, uh, well, listen, this is what I was going to say today. And I went through my entire sermon speed talking and cutting out all of the, everything, and I did the whole sermon in about four minutes. And three times during the sermon, I said, and then I was going to say this, and it was going to be really good. And then I was going to say this, and, you know, it was warm, and they liked it, and I finished that. And I said, but I realized yesterday that I can't. I can't preach that sermon because I'm deeply disappointed with God. And I talked about my personal disappointment. I don't remember what I said. Uh, at the end of it, I offered an illustration. Um, basically, uh, kind of illustrates that God is in the midst of our disappointment. And he uses even that. And I said, you know, as our music minister comes up, that's what we called him in the old days, as our music minister comes up, if you would... Uh, if you'd like to respond, if you need prayer, I'll be down front and come forward. Hundreds of people flooded the front of the church. Hundreds. Crying, um, desperate before God, having a sense of their own disappointment. In fact, uh, the minister of music at one point reached over, tapped me on the shoulder and said, what do we do? <laughs> I didn't know what to do. Uh, we pray over these folks, let them pray for one another. The service runs long. The 11 o'clock service, they're all at the door. Two associate pastors, when we finally dismiss, they come to me and say, what happened? I don't know. I collected myself and thought, okay, at the 11 o'clock service, I'm going to do a normal, I'm just going to do my sermon. I sat on the throne again and realized, okay, the big tall throne, not, not another kind of throne. I sat on the throne again and realized I couldn't, I could not, I could not preach the sermon. So I did some version of uh, the same thing to the 11 o'clock service with the exact same result, only more. Two months ago, I had someone contact me by email. You know, I was at that service on Easter uh, 100 years ago at First Baptist Alexandria. I think it changed my life. Even disappointment in prayer changes things. If we pursue God, it changes for the better. And it affects the environment. It affects others. Even our disappointment in prayer, God uses to change us and others. Think of Daniel right before being thrown into the lion's den. I'll guarantee you that he was offering his best and most religious prayers 
praying against that whole lion's den thing happening. And yet God didn't answer. Or maybe, maybe his answer was no. So how could God deliver Daniel up to the lions? And yet, because Daniel was delivered to the lions, I want you to go this afternoon and read the rest of Daniel 6. The kingdom of Babylon experienced something of a spiritual revival. Prayer changes things, even when we don't see it, even when we're disappointed. I'll make this last point quickly. This is a big one. I may have to revisit this next week. Uh, point, uh, principle number four, before you know what to pray or how to pray, you must become a particular kind of person. Before you know what to pray or how to pray, you must become a particular kind of person. Uh, Amicia Proba was a, a Roman noblewoman and a Christian from the third century, and she had the privilege of knowing uh, St. Augustine of Hippo. And Augustine was the greatest Christian theologian of the first 500 years of the church, maybe the first 1,000 years of the church. And we know some of Augustine's thoughts on prayer because of a letter he wrote to this woman, Amicia. Augustine's first principle on prayer was this. Before we know what to pray or how to pray, we must become a particular kind of person. Augustine said this, you must account yourself desolate in this world, however great the prosperity of your lot may be. Otherwise, you will not pray with any effectiveness. This is why Jesus was not a big fan of pride. This is why he started the Lord's Prayer the way he did. We talked about it last week. The Lord's Prayer is a master class in recognition of who God is and who we are humbled before him. This is also why the 12 steps of AA have been so successful and why they are ordered the way they are. Step number one, admit that your life has become unmanageable. Step number two, admit that you need a power higher than yourself to become sober. You need God. You must account yourself desolate. You must really see yourself and see him. That means to really understand Daniel's prayer life, we have to know more about Daniel. And as we read his story, we find that even as a young man, Daniel pursued God's ways and God's priorities. At, at one point in his story, Daniel heard that the king Nebuchadnezzar, he was the king at the time, was furious with all of the wise men and the seers in his court. And Daniel was afraid that that fury might reach himself and his friends. So he asked God for intervention and God intervened. And God gave Daniel, some of you know this, God gave Daniel insight into what was bothering the king and what it meant. Daniel reported what God had told him to the king, and the king was greatly relieved and thoroughly impressed with Daniel. And what did Daniel do in response? What did Daniel do with his relief? He did what a person like Daniel would do. He prayed. And look at what he prayed. Bring this up if you would, Thomas. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. And if you read the Bible regularly, and many of you do, you get used to this kind of thing. Think about that. This is Daniel's response to this unbelievable set of circumstances and this great relief. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings, raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. You've got to understand who you are and who he is before you know how or what to pray. Before you know what to pray or how to pray, you must become a particular kind of person. Let me explain this a little further. Tim Keller writes about this part of Augustine's thinking in his book on prayer. 
And Keller says that according to Augustine, we must see that our hearts are disordered. Remember that. We must see, we, we've got to see that our hearts are disordered. We've got to see that before we can become a person of prayer. And by that, he means things we ought to love third or fourth in our lives or first in our hearts. Now Keller again. God whom we should love supremely is someone we may acknowledge, but whose favor and presence is not as important to us as prosperity, success, status, love, and pleasure. Keller goes on, unless at the very least we recognize this heart disorder and realize how much it distorts our lives, our prayers will be part of the problem and not an agent of healing. Part of the problem. I interrupt Keller here to draw attention to this. Remember, he's commenting on Augustine's brilliant thinking, which gives what Keller says some gravitas, but still. What did Augustine mean by our prayers being part of the problem if our hearts are disordered? Part of the problem, Keller explains. For example, if you look to to your financial prosperity as your main source of, of safety and confidence in life, then when your wealth is in grave jeopardy, you will cry out to God for help, but your prayers will be little more than worrying in God's direction. When your prayers are finished, you'll be more upset and anxious than before. Now, here's the kicker. According to Augustine and Keller, and more importantly, Paul, and even more importantly, Jesus, the needed reordering happens because of God's work in our lives. This is what I want us to end with this morning. This is what Jesus meant when he told Nicodemus that he must be born again, born of the Spirit. If we want if he wanted to experience God. This is why the New Testament authors use the language of salvation to describe their experience with God. Think about that. They have ransacked the language looking for the most dramatic imagery they could find to describe what an encounter with God is like. And it's the imagery that suggests we need something outside of ourselves. We can't do it. I've told you before here at Gateway, and I say it again when we began our series of conversations, that I am not a person of prayer. It's a struggle for me usually. And I've been known on many occasions to just worry in God's direction. And I've experienced the fruitlessness of that, but there are real times of prayer in my life. There are very real encounters with God and and very real answers to very real petitions. Many of you know what I mean. And here's my point. I'm speaking especially to those of you who are struggling with all of this or those of you who are still on the outside of faith looking in. You need to know that I want more of God. That's why I pray. It really is. But I don't want more of God because something in in me inspired me to want more of God. I was transformed so that I want more of God. I was transformed into the kind of person who would sometimes pray, honestly, with faith, and desperately. Prayer requires discipline. Prayer involves sacrifice. Prayer changes things. But before we know what to pray or how to pray, we have to become a particular kind of person. Okay, I'd like for us to do some lab work. Uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola started the Jesuits uh, in the 16th century, and he had a practice. Some of you do some version of this without even knowing the name of it, but he had a practice that he called the prayer of examine. 
And uh, the spiritual writer Richard Foster said this about the prayer of examine. The prayer of examine has two basic aspects, like two sides of a door. The first is an examine of consciousness through which we discover how God has been present to us through the day and how we have responded to his loving presence. So we just try to become conscious of of God and how he's been with us. Uh, the, The second aspect is examine of conscience in which we uncover those areas that need cleansing, purifying, and healing. I'm going to invite our worship team to come if they would. And um, I want us to uh, use our bodies. I'm going to give you three options. We're going to close our eyes, and then I want you to exercise one of these bodily options. I want you to stand in honor of him, or I want you to kneel in, in uh, a worship of him and humility before him, or in your seat or standing or kneeling, I want you to lift your hands as a, uh, a way of expressing your needs. So one of those three, I want you to do that this morning, and we're going to try our best to become as aware as we can of God's presence. So I'm including those of you who are at home. Don't just sit. Okay, let's close our eyes, and I want you to stand or kneel or raise your hands. I want you to take a couple of deep breaths, and then I want you to become, I know this is goofy, run with it. I want you to become as aware of God's presence right now as you can be. You may have sensed him tugging on your heart at some point this morning through something I said or through something we sang through the little Daniel prayer exercise that Chris read for us, through one of the songs. Get in touch with that. Sense his presence. Spirit, we pray that you would come. Make us aware of your presence among us. Secondly, I want you to review your morning and review yesterday. You can begin yesterday morning or you can begin in the middle of the day. Literally, call to mind what you did, where you were, what happened. Just let the day, yesterday, last night, and this morning wash over you. If, if something sticks in your mind, let it stay there. Just walk through your day, walk through your morning. Bring it to mind.
Next, as you walk through your day, as you walk through the morning, stay there. But I want you to now ask, where did you see God at work? Even in what you're ashamed of, where did you see God at work? The, the, the yard work, the to-do list, interaction with a neighbor, with your family, what you were thinking about, the rush of this morning, what you watched last night. Where did you see God at work? Let Invite him into the, the last 24 hours. now ask yourself how you feel about your day, how you feel about what happened, how you feel about God's presence with you, or the lack of the sense of his presence. Finally, I want you to respond with either thanksgiving or confession to what you've seen, what you felt.